You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Selah. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Discriminology. I am one of your hosts, Malik, and I am joined today by Steve Kramer and Sydney Penn. Let's not waste any time today. Malcolm X, El Haj Malik El Shabazz, is the topic of discussion today. Malcolm X has been trending in the news lately, mostly because of the ambiguity that surrounds his assassination. We figured it would be timely to take a look at his rhetoric and from an objective point of view. For the record, we will be offering our own opinions on his messaging, but our primary goal is to present all the necessary information for our listeners to formulate their own conclusions about the legacy of Malcolm X. Sid, let's start with you today. What are some of the primary themes or questions that kind of surround his legacy that you'd like to talk about today? I definitely, I will speak for myself uh, when I say that in learning about Malcolm X, um, growing up like both in school, at home, um, for myself, it did create uh, a lot of ambiguity and a lot of sometimes confusion, um, mis-messaging about his legacy and who he was as an activist um, and as a person. Uh, and I think a lot of it um, now in my adulthood looking back was, you know, formulated from propaganda and from the government. But I think we, I would like to kind of start with talking about his, what his message really was and how the perception of his message um, was taken by the, by the larger, you know, white masses and society. And so was he in fact a man who, um, promoted, promulgated violence? Did he believe in that? Did he support that? Did he not? Well, I'll use his own his own words. He did an interview with at Berkeley College and it was asked the same question, whether or not himself and the Nation of Islam was a violent organization that used violence to attain its goals. He more or less responded that the Nation and himself have never been guilty of initiating or promoting violence. What they promoted was self-defense. We aren't a violent group. But we're also taught that at any time, anyone in any way uh, inflicts or seeks to inflict violence upon us, we are within our religious rights to retaliate in self-defense to the maximum degree of our ability. He cited the whole narrative of them being violent as a, as a kind of a propaganda uh, campaign. And he used an example of a man being lynched and him struggling vigorously to resist his lyncher and that individual being called the violent one because he's resisting as opposed to the person committing the crime ever being identified with violence so to accuse us of of being violence is like accusing a man who is being lynched who is being hung on a tree uh, simply because he struggles vigorously against his lyncher the victim is accused of violence but the lyncher is never accused of violence. So I think it's just interesting how, and he even speaks to it, how the media can really dominate the perception of an individual, whether it's true, false, or anywhere in between. But Mr. Kramer, do you have anything to add to that in terms of his perception of being a violent individual? Yeah, of course. You know, from from a curriculum standpoint, you know, having having learned this and having taught this. The curriculum always teaches that, you know, Martin was the nonviolent 
arm of the civil rights wing and Malcolm was the violent arm. And they actually compare Malcolm often to some of the revolutionary leaders in Africa that were leading their own revolutionary, um, you know, movements, you know, um, Nelson Mandela, he was, he was, uh, he had an armed force that, that, that raided and Jomo Kenyatta and, and, and these people that, you know, fought back against their power structure and then all those power structures were white. So that's always how Malcolm X is portrayed. And he's certainly still portrayed like that in school curriculums and things like that. But that's very far from the truth. He was, he was, did not promote violence. He didn't say that, you know, they should take to the streets and, and destroy things. But he absolutely said that if violence is perpetrated against the black people, that they should respond with violence. And that's where he and, and Martin differed, where Martin was turning the other cheek and practicing nonviolence. Malcolm said that you should stand proudly and stand against it. And if violence is perpetrated against you, you should respond in, in kind. I think that that, um, that kind of dichotomy between them or that comparison between them is really interesting. I think that that also, that context um, gets lost when we, when we, in school, especially when we learn about the two of them in comparison to each other. Like, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X had very different experiences growing up and have very different perceptions themselves of society and of these same social justice, racial issues. You know, yes, they're both black men who both experienced a lot of the same things as, as far as like, you know, racism, you know, police violence, et cetera, but had very different upbringings. And so because of their own um, traumas that they, you know, that they had similarities between, but also very vast differences that they both had to deal with, it, it shaped the way that they viewed these same issues. And so that context is important when we learn about both of their messaging and why Martin Luther King um, preached what he preached and non, a nonviolent approach regardless, um, and why Malcolm X didn't have that same viewpoint. So let's give our listeners a little bit of context in terms of their upbringing. So Dr. King came from a relatively stable household, um, two parents, um, very loving home. That's according to his biography that autobiography that he came from a very uh, loving household. Malcolm X, on the other hand, his house was violently attacked. He was originally in Omaha, Nebraska. He had to move to Michigan. His father was murdered. It was painted as a suicide, even though he was thrown onto a, a railroad track and beaten and, and killed. So that's his first instance of the American system failing him. From that point on, um, his mother was institutionalized for 20 years um, because her mental health deteriorated from not having the resources to take care of the um, his large family at the time, and his siblings were separated. So he um, actually ended up living with a white family. And well, when he lived with the white family, he did very he did very well in school. And one of his more profound experiences were when he asked his teacher, like, "Oh, what I sh what should I be when I'm older?" Um, he said, "I wanted to be a lawyer." And the teacher, in more colorful words, said, "A black man can't be a lawyer; better off being a carpenter." So in, in summary, like Malcolm X's whole upbringing is the system essentially failing him from start to finish in every facet of capacity. So of course he's going to view, his rhetoric is going to differ from someone like Dr. King. Um, it's just another perspective. It's not right, wrong, or in, it's just another perspective that needs to be accounted for. Yeah. And, and two of his houses were burned down by the Klan. Two houses. It's not, it's not that he was 
living in a neighborhood where he saw violence. It's not that his, you know, he lost his father when he was younger. He he had two of his houses, childhood homes, burned down by the Klan, and they, and they still kept moving forward. Um, I think it's also important to talk about who his father was, because he didn't know his father. And his father um, was an acolyte of Marcus Garvey. So the fact that he was taught black nationalism from from the get-go, and his mother actually wrote for, for the newspaper, too, um, is, a, is a big deal because, you know, Martin grew up in the church and Malcolm grew up with Marcus Garvey. And, of course, you're not going to have the same rhetoric. Of course, you're not going to view the violence that's being perpetrated in the same, in the same way or through the same lens. So I think that's really important. So Sidney kind of brought up wanting to start with his what was his true messaging? Because it kind of gets convoluted um, throughout history and, and with the accusations of violence. What is black nationalism? What was he really trying to get across? Um, for me, when I look back and, and read some of his messaging and, and you know watch all the documentaries, Malcolm X's rhetoric, when you really cut through it, doesn't differ that much from Dr. King's. What it really is is black empowerment. Exactly what does your movement stand for? Would you explain that to me? Well, it stands for the betterment, the upliftment of the black man here in America. He really wants black people to respect themselves, to think highly of themselves. He speaks to the um, indoctrination of many American black people to think of themselves as inferior. And he kind of challenges, not really challenges that, he kind of cites accurate history that our, our lineage is, is derived from kings and queens and and this narrative that what eventually became um, African black slaves were just in huts swinging around on trees like that just wasn't a true narrative. It was associated or identified Africa with a savage jungle-like place. And whenever you mentioned the word African in their mind's eye, they could see the image of a, someone running around with a spear uh, with no language. You'd say ugga bugga boo or buana or something. And uh, who'd be in a jungle running from lions or chasing lions. So he really, he really just empowered the community. That was his primary goal. Yeah. And I think he learned, you know, a little later in life, how powerful those kingdoms were. And as there were golden ages in Africa, Europeans were still living in caves. So the narrative is really flipped. Correct. And that's something that's not taught in America. That's something that's, you know, it, it's now it's taught, but it's not really put in that kind of context. You know, so this this racial superiority is still, although not not preached in schools, it's still taught in schools. So this is something that also affected his life. Mr. Kramer, can you talk a little bit more about like explicitly what black nationalism is, like the idea of separatism and and I guess Malcolm's rhetoric on integration? Um, Because I think these are all important concepts to touch on. Yeah, sure. So. There was a whole um, movement, the whole Iberia movement was to to leave the country and move back to Africa and the African kingdoms. And people did try to do that. There, there was there was a movement. I mean, it, it was obviously it was never successful, but it was more in America. It it really became um, creating a creating a black experience for black people outside of the white power establishment outside of the uh, American government where black people could be self-sufficient. What Mr. Muhammad has said is that he wants freedom, justice, and equality for the black people here in America, which you agree they don't have. 
If they did, you wouldn't have a race problem. And he says, if America cannot bring about freedom, justice, and equality for our people in this country, then America should allow us to leave. If we can't get along together, we should, allow, we should be allowed to, to depart and go someplace where we can set up housekeeping for ourselves. Then he says, if America doesn't want us to go back home among our own people, and at the same time they want to keep us here, since we can't stay here and get along together in peace, he says what America should do is separate part of the country and give us a section where we can live and give us everything we need to get our particular uh, section functioning independently, uh, support us for 25 years until we are able to function independently in a society of our own, and in this way the problem will be solved. And and it's what you said before, really, it's really empowerment. It's really, we, we don't need the white power structure to be successful. We don't need to try to be accepted by white people to be proud. And that, that's really what was, what was preached, or, or to be successful. Um, so that's what he preached when, when, when he was older, and that's what he preached you know, finally, when 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 he uh, when he was released from prison and and his family had joined the nation of Islam and then he joined the nation of Islam. This is what the nation of Islam was preaching. So this was something that was incredibly attractive to him. That you know he found this prophet that was preaching exact almost exactly what Marcus Garvey had been talking about. You know, all the all the way back to the turn of the century, or the early early part of our century. So this idea that that the black experience should not rely on acceptance of white people framed what what he taught where martin on the other hand all he preached was integration you know that was the goal of martin's civil rights movement was to fully integrate where malcolm never saw that as a plausible way to go about things in america what's incredible and it goes back to the propaganda that he used to cite he was asked in an interview one time if he was racist and, and and why he is anti-integration. And he said to the, to the effect and responded, how could it be me that is anti-integration? It's the white power structure that doesn't want to integrate. In these integration efforts, if we believed in it, we would integrate and we would fight anybody who got in our way or made any effort whatsoever to stop us from integrating. Mm -hmm. If we really believed that the law of the land, the Supreme Court, and other so-called judicial bodies were for real uh, when they talked about integration, we would integrate. And knowing that the law was on our side, and any effort we made to demonstrate toward integration, why we would know the law should be on our side, uh, if it's the law of the land. If it is the law of the land, then the demonstrators are within the law, and the uh, uh, discriminators are against the law. Mm -hmm. But to show you the hypocrisy of the law, when Negroes demonstrate for integration, instead of uh, arresting the discriminators, the law arrests the demonstrators. But it's just, it's just amazing that time and time again, the media attention is directed towards the victim. This is a sort of a propaganda tactic, or what I would call psychological warfare. And never the perpetrator of violence or, or inequity or, or whatever the case is. What would you all say to some of our listeners who are who are listening to this and thinking, um, you know, why would why would somebody be supportive of somebody like Malcolm X who doesn't believe in, you know, integrating? Like, why why is that ideal supported? Like this idea of not coming together or not, you know, working in hand in hand 
with someone else? You know, why would that, why would that be supported? But you kind of just answered, like you kind of just answered it. Um, and it, yeah, that context is important. Like people have to understand that that, that notion um, or thinking that what Malcolm X was preaching was, that was negative in that way is plays into this blindness that our society kind of acts like we have um, as far as the white power structure and, and ignoring either purposely or not purposely being ignorant to the fact that we're talking about a power structure that has, that was built on oppression and that was built on the backs of this group of people. And so when you have to look at that from that lens and not from the lens of this is somebody who doesn't want to integrate with somebody else or work together with somebody else, there's a context behind it. And that's what you alluded to. Malik. Yeah. And, and I would add, and I would add to that, Sid, that, that abs- everything you just said is, is absolutely on point. And I would just add that that pow- that this country was built on violence. You know, when we talk about violence and Malcolm X's responses almost always were, we're not the violent ones. We're the ones that violence was perpetrated on. So you're accusing us when it really comes from your guilt. There's a, there's a great quote in here that, that we can get to in a couple of minutes about how this reaction by white people to call him violent or to call any, any black person that's, that's protesting violent really just comes from the guilt of a white man realizing that he's the one that's been violent all along. The charge of violence against us actually stems from the guilt complex that exists in the conscious and subconscious minds of most white people in this country. They know that they've been violent in their brutality against Negroes, and they feel that Someday the Negro is going to wake up and try and do unto them as they have done unto do unto the whites as the whites have done unto us. I guess the only thing I wanted to add in terms of his rhetoric and and self perception of black people is in the Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois. He touches on the idea of Black Americans seeing themselves through the eyes of white people as opposed to just seeing themselves normally. The way they measure themselves is through the eyes, is seeing themselves through the eyes of white people. I guess Malcolm's real, in my opinion, Malcolm's real writ from the from the rhetoric of Dr. King was we don't need to placate to I guess that vision or or how we're we're rated through the eyes of white people. We can empower and see ourselves in a different light. Like it doesn't matter how we're seen by the white power structure. That doesn't, that's not a barometer of our value or our success. What measures our success is what we do and, and the, the businesses we establish and, and how we carry ourselves and how we educate ourselves. And if you even look at what the Nation of Islam was doing at the time, they were establishing a lot of businesses in the community. They were encouraging people to buy black and, and really encourage economic um, thriftness and, and education and self-respect. And the Nation of Islam was recruiting people that we're essentially at the bottom of society, like drug addicts, very poor people, ex-criminals. Malcolm X was an ex-drug addict and ex-criminal themselves. And their whole model, I don't want to say business model, was showing that we had the power to turn our experience around. Um, and I think that was really the essence of his message. How did you happen to join the Muslim movement? I was in prison. Uh, I was a very wayward, criminal, backward, illiterate, uneducated and whatever other negative uh, characteristics you can think of, type of person, 
until I heard the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And because of the impact that it had upon me in giving me a desire to reform myself and rehabilitate myself for the first time in my life, and also being able to see the effect that it had upon others, this is what made me accept it. And plus, uh, prior to hearing what he teaches, I had no interest whatsoever in anything serious or any kind of educational pursuits. And I noticed that after being uh, exposed to the religious teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, immediately it instilled within me such a high degree of racial pride and racial dignity that I wanted to be somebody. And I realized that I couldn't be anybody by begging uh, the white man for what he had, but that I had to get out here and try and do something for myself or make something out of myself. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably important to to talk about also is that the preachings of Islam uh, of black of the black Islamic uh, movement and the nation of Islam is that Elijah Muhammad did teach that the white man is the devil. This is this is something that he that he taught, and this was something that was that was pretty centric to to their teachings. That and it actually goes to an old myth that that white people were created as demons by this ancient being and. And they're actually the devil on earth, and they can't be trusted. And this is something that um, I, I would say became part of who Malcolm X was. And when he would preach like that, and he would and he would use that language, of course, there, there's no other way to interpret it. You know, if you're a white person and this guy's calling you a, a devil, you know, it's, it's I wouldn't quite compare it to white privilege today, but I would say it's kind of the, kind of the same rate. Kind kind of the same reaction that people have is like, oh, I don't have privilege. Like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you do, you know. So for the for the record, I think it's fair we say that referring to white people as white devils is unfair and and very harsh to say. It's it's not yeah that's not that's yeah it's not going to exactly get the job done. Um, but we do have no. to explain, you know, the again we have to talk about why why he felt this. Why he felt this way in the context is important. Yeah, but but he wasn't trying to get he. That's not the job he was trying to get done. No, he wasn't. Again, he was he he was not trying to integrate. He was not trying to placate. No. He was not trying to make any white person feel good about themselves. He was saying that they are the reason the black people have had violence committed on them, regardless of who they were, whether they were the ones committing the violence or the ones standing by and letting it happen. And that and that was really his message. Mr. Kramer, let's talk about he he cited these accusations and these indictments from a historical standpoint too. His his main backing for these sentiments was across the globe throughout history, wherever the white man has been, um, there has been pillaging, there's been rape, there's been violence or enslavement. And that was mm. his historical backing for promulgating this this narrative of white people being devils. So can you just speak to that? Is that is that a fair historical assessment? Is that is that a narrow one? Like, can you just speak to it from a historical lens? I, I would say that that's the human condition, really. You know, um, certain certainly what he was being taught was was that was what it was, and and I, I would say whatever whatever ancient civilization you look at, or whatever power structure, or whatever country you look at, whatever whatever the race of that country is. It, their histories are usually incredibly violent. You know, human history is a violent history. And who's ever in charge keeps that power with violence. There's, there's not a whole long times of peace. You know, they talk about the Pax Romana in Rome, and they talk about all these 
those weren't peaceful times. Those those were those were murderous, barbarous times. You know, just because they weren't invading, doesn't mean that people weren't being killed all over the place. So I think that I think that just to to call it a race issue and just to call it a skin color issue is missing the point. Because you can look to African nations, you can look at the Hutus and the Tutsis, you can look um, to Asia, you can look to to Kublai Khan and Genghis Khan, and you can look to you can look to these people. You, the Japanese did it. I mean, the Japanese did it in modern times to the Chinese. And, you know, here you have two Asian cultures that despise each other. You know, you know, you're leaving, leaving black and white out of it. Right. So I think the human history is a violent history. And I don't think that we've ever gotten past that. America is specific in that we were built on violence towards black people. And, and I've said that before in this podcast, and I stand by that is that we can kind of define a lot of American history or most of American history on the race relations that we have and what 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 is the current treatment of, of black people in America define kind of always defines that time period. So that's what Malcolm was dealing with. Right. And that is a very fair assessment that you made, sir. <laughs> oh, thank you. And we preface this this discussion by saying that we would objectively look at his rhetoric. So we have to look at all of his rhetoric, even even some of the rhetoric that may be difficult people to talk about or listen to and and really discuss it before we move on to another topic it's it's important to to talk about his progression as a person and when he went to Mecca and he met other white muslims and that kind of changed his perception of white people and he then progressed to attribute the power structure being responsible for the oppression and not necessarily it just being a, a an explicit color issue globally. But I don't know if you wanted to add to that. Yeah, no, that I, that's that's uh that's what I was going to bring up. He certainly didn't end his life thinking that that the white race was the devil, you know. He he evolved greatly throughout his life and that's something that also is really important to to kind of talk about from from his youth, from 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 the incredibly traumatic experiences he faced as a young person to his times in in the criminal syndicates that that he kind of ran. Uh, to his time in prison and and his evolution through the nation of Islam, you know there there are a lot of different Malcolm X's, and there's a lot of evolution to him. And to pigeonhole him is certainly not fair to history. You know, it's not it's not an apology of Malcolm X. It's an explanation of who he was as a man. And um, I, I think that's that's obviously what what I would want history to remember him as. He 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 preached all of these things in his life. Uh, different periods of his life, and he was he was a man of his experiences, you know. And 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 met, was he a powerful man? Absolutely. I think you said it best in in terms of saying that he's a, he was a man of his experiences. Because um, another theme I wanted to talk about was the the dramatic rise of Islam and Black Muslims during a time period between the 1950s and and the early 1960s. And if you really think about it. Um, Elijah Muhammad, as we were saying before, was preaching the concept of white devil. Let's take my, Malcolm X, for example. You have an individual that every single interaction throughout his life with white people has either been belittling, violent, or, or overall negative. He, If you read his autobiography, he has never had a positive experience with white people. Not one time. But maybe that's dramatic, but like he, he seldom. There, there was one person from his childhood, one white teacher. But she was vilified in her neighborhood. Right. Right. Um, so seldom. 
then you have this individual who is at the bottom of society during his criminal, um, during his past criminal life and no options. Obviously, there's going to be individuals that will gravitate towards that. And I referenced before how the Nation of Islam was recruiting people that were in prison, ex-drug addicts, people, people forgotten members of society um, that have been oppressed by the American power structure. It's very logical why rhetoric like that would catch fire, especially in communities like that. The real lesson here is not even just focusing on the rhetoric, but understanding that forgotten corners of society affects everyone at some point. And it's important to to promote equality. You know, it's not, I think we have a perception in America that if you, even if you look at low income neighborhoods, it's not a problem unless the violence or, or anything that's going on spills over into a higher income neighborhood. When really the, the problem is, no, like we shouldn't want people living in slums, period. You know what I mean? So I think it kind of speaks to that pockets of the country that are in extreme, extremely destitute of, of, of everything that um, humans are entitled to. It's going to it's going to become problematic for everyone at some point. It's it, You can't just put a, a lid on it and walk away and, and expect it to never affect us. Yeah. And that that is something that that Malcolm certainly preached and other civil rights leaders of the time preached. I want to bring up uh, one of one of the more important ones, um, James Baldwin, who worked with both Malcolm and Martin. And Paul Baldwin was a very interesting guy because he was he seemed to be between the two of them. He seemed to not during his lifetime. He seemed he seemed to not really latch on to either one of them. Yet through his through his speech and through his actions and through his evolution. He moved to Paris. He came back. He 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 knew both of them very well. He started talking about how there will never be peace in the United States. That it doesn't matter which tack you take, whether you want integration or you want or you want black nationalism. That the black man doesn't matter what he does. Doesn't matter. James Baldwin said, "What matters is what the white people do." And this is this is kind of um, roundabout way getting to what what uh, what Malik was just talking about is that until the white people in this country reconcile how they treat black people, there will be no equality for anyone, and the violence is going to come to the white people. The violence is going to come, and they're going to be the ones responsible for it. They're going to light the fires, and he was right. You know, that's what we saw in the 60s. That's what we've seen over the last year and a half. The violence has come and it's not the black community's fault. The black community did not like that. The black community reacted to the violence. And I think that's something really, really important to remember about Malcolm. This is what he saw. This is what he experienced. And of course, he was, you know, of course, gunned down in the most violent way. We, we could talk about that, too. But yeah. The sheer irony of um, him being killed by violence is, uh, it's interesting. There's a lot of ambiguity around his death, but yes, um, you, you really did touch on at least what I was trying to in a very circumvented way explain that, um, you know, it, it really takes all of us to, to reconcile what's going on in the country. It can't just be, it's not a, like inequality is not a black problem or, or a minority problem. It's an American problem. That's right. I think that's the, the main if I would want any of anything we said today to be taken home from our listeners, it would be that inequality is is a is a problem that we all share.
Yeah, and I think, you know, you know, getting back to what, what Malik had asked me before, this this is the story of the human race. Oppressed people are going to fight back. You, you, they are going to. If people are oppressed, if people are hungry, if people are shut out of the system, they're not going to take it for that long. They're not going to sit back and take it. And that's that's really what Malcolm's Malcolm's message was: is that you know he he called Martin he called Martin Luther King Uncle Tom. He he said that out loud. He said that in in an interview. Just as Uncle Tom back during slavery used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy or pray for those who use them despitefully. Today, uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless. You know, I'm not really sure there's, there's you know, something that you could say worse to a, to a fellow fellow civil rights leader calling him an Uncle Tom, but he said, turning the other cheek is giving them exactly what they want. It's giving them exactly this passive idea of us. We're going to sit, we're going to take it. And he said, stop doing that. Stop taking it. Rise up. If, they, if they're violent towards you, rise up. Now, I will say that back to this, not, this idea of him being a violent man, he, he averted one of the most violent things that could have possibly happened but there was a mosque in california where there was there was activity going going on the police raided this mosque because of course they were on the fbi watch list unarmed everybody was unarmed and eight men were gunned down and the nation of islam was calling for violence the nation of islam said you know we're we're 70,000 strong now by the mid 60s or I think there were 75,000 actual card-carrying members of the Nation of Islam. And they said, we're going to California, and we're grabbing our guns, and we're going. And the Prophet Muhammad got Malcolm to call that off. Malcolm wanted to go. Malcolm was like, yeah, let's do it. It's time. This is what we're doing. And he was convinced that that's going to be the end of the movement if they do that. And um, he actually averted the violence. So... This idea that he was inciting violence, this idea that he was always promoting violence, just just simply factually isn't true. And what an interesting parallel, I don't know if we're going to be getting to this point yet, but what an interesting parallel um, that Mr. Cambridge has made for me in the fact that this is somebody who wanted to go, right, and wanted to participate in something in that and called it off because he knew that that would be the end of the movement if that happened, meaning that the people that went out to California probably wouldn't come back. And that would be the end of the, that would be the end of that. And it's such an interesting parallel between that and what happened a couple, uh, a couple months ago now, almost. Um, the uh, insurrection. Yeah. The Capitol. Yeah. Yes. The insurrection at the Capitol and how, and how not only was that violence not called off. Right. But this, this idea that, that the, I'm not even going to say the same because it's not, but the idea that that violence was not only not called off, but that there was not one person who participated in that violent act or who was there at that, doing that violent act had any notion or any fear or any hesitation that them, that their, what they, those people deem as their movement would end if they participated in what they participated in. And that's why I, did, I didn't want to say that it's the same because in my opinion, right. that, that's, that's not a movement. And so that's why I didn't want to make, I didn't want, I didn't want to be unclear. But it's just, that's an interesting power, right? Because that's not power to me. 
there's there's multiple things you can pull out of that because again i won't even speak to the logic or the reason but those individuals were disgruntled because they believed that they were cheated out of an election right Mr. Kramer just drew a parallel in terms of whenever people feel or what people are, I'm not even going to say weren't. (laughs) Right. It's so hard to, I know. If people have a perception that they've been shut out, right? They are going to react. They are not, they're going to resist. And I think it's, it's interesting to see how black people are encouraged to, to, to be passive and not just be passive, but the, the idea of gradualism and to wait and to be patient and then that election was very like i mean the results came in and weeks later people were storming the capitol it's like it's just it's just mind-boggling the the double standards that are encouraged see why at the time that he said it i can see why he would say that someone like that he would say someone like martin luther king jr um was an uncle tom at the time that he said that um and this notion that, right, we do what we are, quote unquote, as a people told to do, right? We're told to be positive, turn the other cheek and you know, take the high road and, you know, use our voice in the ballot box and, and do all this, that and the third. And then when we do that, like Malik just alluded to, this is, you know, we do that and the result comes and then there's people storming the Capitol about it. And it's like, it's just like, you know, I can see it, but it's complex. I want to, I want to read one of I want to read one of his quotes about um, citizenship. So he said, when you have civil rights, you are a citizen and it's automatic. You don't need any additional laws to protect you. And he he cited how white people didn't need additional laws because they're citizens and how the American power structure never wanted to admit that black people were not full citizens and that we were essentially second class citizens. And, and, And that that is what desired the need for like civil rights legislation and additional laws to protect. But there was a resistance that these laws would protect us so much that it would make us equivalent to being full citizens. That was his his breakdown of that. And the example he used was uh, the Supreme Court desegregation, uh, which he said was the best example he knew. And he said that this is a law that was intended to protect black black people. And it it was the Supreme Court. And at the time he said this, which was the Berkeley interview, 10 years went by and none of the schools were actually desegregated. Um, and it was only really implemented at 9%. So if you talk about experience and talk about his, his rhetoric, he has endless and abundant examples of the system utterly failing, shutting out, or, or being disadvantageous to Black people. So expecting this individual to want to assimilate into this power structure that is that is so rigged against him and people like him, it is kind of ludicrous to expect out of someone. They don't want to admit that this black man is not a citizen. Uh, so they classify him as a, a second-class citizen to, uh, to get around uh, making him a real citizen. If he was a real citizen, you'd need no more laws. You'd need no civil rights legislation. Uh, civil rights, uh, when you have civil rights, you have citizenship. It's automatic. White people don't need laws to protect their citizenship because they're citizens. But they, want, they, uh, they don't want to tell us we're not citizens. And at the same time, they don't want to pass laws that are meaningful enough to protect us as if we were citizens. And the Supreme Court desegregation decision is the best example I know. That's a law from the Supreme Court. Ten years have gone by. No, no desegregated schools. It hasn't been implemented beyond, I think, 9% in ten years. Uh, and, and it goes as high as the presidency. You know, the, 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 
two of the leaders of the Nation of Islam went to uh, Bobby Kennedy when he was the Attorney General. They actually got a they got a meeting with him. Uh, although, you know, the Kennedys met with them, but their point was that they were always symbolic meeting meetings. They wanted the Kennedys to go themselves. They wanted the president himself to go and desegregate those schools. He said, don't send the National Guard. You go. You go with your brother down there. You walk those kids into those buildings down there. And Bobby Kennedy said, well, what would that do? That's just that's just a symbolic thing. I'm like, what would it do? Like, he's he's the symbol of America. He's the American president. Like, symbolism is is very important, you know? And so the idea that yeah, the idea that at, at the highest level, even these guys who you think are on your side, even these guys who you think are your allies, are not willing to put themselves or, or even kind of like realize uh, how powerful a statement that would be. And I'm sure they're smart enough to realize how powerful a statement it would be. But they were politicians, so they didn't go. The political ramifications would have been too much for them. That's really what it came down to. That's what they thought. That's what they thought. But but then you, but then you had Lyndon Johnson who followed, who who did everything that they said they were going to do. And he actually did it, yeah. you know? So, and, and he did it himself. He grabbed people by the shirt. He, he threw people against walls. You signed this bill, passed the bill. So, you know, I guess it really depends on, on who your allies are. Right. But, um, but that was Malcolm's point the whole time is that, is that, you know, and, and James Baldwin's point too, that, Unless that, unless that white power structure ever fully reconciles what is going on, in, integration is is you know, it's a pipe dream. It's not. It's not. It's not something that's going to happen. Although towards the end of his lives, and I think we should get to that too, he did start preaching it. You know, towards the, towards the end of Malcolm's life, he started voter registration drives. He started um, you know full integration drives in Harlem. Registering as an independent. Register right, right. No, absolutely. He said, do not register as a Democrat or Republican. Don't don't play that. But you put your name on that ballot and and let let's start doing it. So again, his evolution was well, those two guys, those two guys who are supposed to be the 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 white liberals, Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy, they're supposed to come down and then they're not gonna do it. He did after his Hajj, after he came back from Mecca, he did start to see the 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 importance of it, and and he and Martin started to come together. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm talking about James Baldwin so much, but I've just been doing so much reading lately, uh, prepping for this, that he's uh, he's he's so on my mind. He he said that Malcolm and Martin were the yin and the yang of the civil rights movement, that they were forever attached, that their goals were always the same. And their goals were black empowerment. And they were just opposite ends of it, but they were forever tied together. And um, what, one, of the, uh, one of my favorite things that, that Baldwin said was, Malcolm was one of the people Martin saw on the mountaintop. I think that's incredible. They just were simply trapped in the same situation. It's, it's, it's just a, such a powerful image, you know? Honestly, I think that's a... Great place to end. Yeah, that was that was a great way to tie everything up. Because um, what I was going to ask was just how should history look back on Malcolm X like through everything we've discussed today? And that is perfect. There's a Netflix um, documentary called I Am Not Your Negro, which is uh, which is James Baldwin um, letters that he wrote that he was trying to get published as a book. 
it, it, it really is incredible. Um, he juxtaposed the lives of Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King and his meetings with them and his interactions with them. It's narrated by Samuel L. So it's, it's, it's this very, very powerful. But you get so many of the images and then you see these images tied to the modern Black Lives Matter movement. And you see how the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement are being treated exactly the same way, exactly the same way by the white power structure. The, the footage, the, the, um, the fire hoses, the dogs are juxtaposed with Ferguson, with the, with the bombs and stuff. And then, you know, it, it was made, it was made uh, I think it was edited a little bit later. But, but my point is, is, that, is that how powerful Malcolm was and how powerful his message was still resonates with the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, uh, this this other this other quote that I that I had pulled that it, when I was doing all my reading um, from Hawk Newsom. Hawk Newsom was is the uh, I believe he still is the president of the Black Lives Matter movement in um, in uh, New York. And a reporter asked him, you know, you know, why does his movement promote violence? And and his answer was, Wow, it's interesting that you would pose that question like that. Because this country is built upon violence. What was the American Revolution? What's our diplomacy across the globe? We go in, we blow up countries, we replace their leaders with leaders who we like. So for any American to accuse us of being violent is extremely hypocritical. It's gaslighting. It's, it's gaslighting by definition. It is, but that's modern Malcolm. You know, that's, Mal that's what Malcolm would be saying if he were alive today. It's, that's his message. And to you know to kind of like to kind of write off Malcolm as not being as important as Martin which which is what our curriculum does it's what history tries to do it do, does a tremendous disservice because although Martin Martin certainly was way more important when it came to legislation getting passed Malcolm was made way more important with empowerment i think and I think that Malcolm's empowerment message has lasted longer, and and to in some instances has been more effective. So the the last thing I wanted to bring up before we kind of wrap up today was um, this. Now this is opinionated. I want to say I want your opinion, Mr. Kramer. I want your opinion. Um, from my perception, it seems that Malcolm is a little more popular in younger generations, um, and Martin is is popular among older demographics. Do you, do you think there's any validity to that? Um, yes, I definitely see, uh, see that. And I can, I can, I understand that my mother um, grew up during, you know, it was, was a young girl during the civil rights movement. She actually was, I believe, um, eight, seven or eight when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Um, so it's, I, I, I can see, why and I, I do believe that again the class for context that it has a lot to do with again the time frame that you grow up in and how um the experiences that you see as you grow up with this with the movement at the time affects that and i think that with with malcolm x and how mr kramer just kind of alluded to how he his message kind of carries over to the current black lives matter movement how a lot of young people are growing up in this movement and seeing it happen um and so I, I kind of I can see why that is like the 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 perception. Um, I guess maybe in some ways it might be that Malcolm X for some for younger people maybe might be a little bit more relatable 
or maybe, um, again, because this message was more from empowerment um, and empowering our own people. And that's kind of what's happening right now. That's, that's the current movement or like, you know, hype that we're, that we're experiencing right now in the media and everything else, social media, um, and how Martin Luther King at the time was trying to change legislation and change policy. And my mother remembers growing up with that happening, with those changes happening and being prevalent in the media, like laws changing and him, you know, doing that. So I can see that. Aspects of, um, I've done a decent amount of reading on both of them and it's just aspects of Malcolm's rhetoric it just makes me feel proud to be black and I enjoy that feeling. It makes me want to strive for more. It makes me believe in myself. It makes me believe in the ability to, you know, do, create a better experience for myself. So again, this is my opinion. I, I guess that's to Mr. Kramer's point, that feeling, that sentiment goes beyond, beyond legislation. My Angelou's one, one of my Angelou's most famous quotes is, you don't remember what people say, but you remember how they make you feel. And like, that's how, a lot of his rhetoric makes me feel. It makes me feel proud to be, it makes me stand up straight. It makes me want to carry myself a different way. I walk in a room, I feel like I've, I have more confidence. I feel like, you know what, I, I do belong here, you know? Um, you walk in a room and have more with, with this current movement, what's happening right now. You know, we, we're seeing a big push with people buying black and supporting black business being, um, you know, an important, you know what I'm saying, important message that's, that's getting spread right now. And again, that kind of those, those ideals and those things is what, Malcolm X um, preached and supported and tried to uh, promulgate. So I think that that's kind of what we're seeing and why it might be that that's the reason why he's more relatable to the younger generation of this generation right now. Um, you a- ask a 51 year old guy that question, right? Um, <laughs> which is why you asked the question. Um, I- I'll sit the fence on this one um, and-, and I'll phrase it this way. The demonstration that, that, uh, that you coordinated last summer was that malcolm was that malcolm or was that martin malik and malik knows the answer to that question because no i don't that's i don't think he well, does okay. that's not what i'm getting well, okay at. i feel like malik knows the answer to this question maybe it's this is biased because i feel like if you know malik like if you're friends with malik i feel like we know what his answer might be but i also see why mm-hmm. the answer might not be that clear because it was a peaceful demonstration so you know but i feel like malik knows what the answer is because we know malik and we know what the answer we know the vibes we know the vibes, but okay. Go ahead, Malik. Answer the question. I do. I just want him to think about it, though, and then tell the audience what uh, was our demonstration, Malcolm or Martin. <laughs> I love it. Malik's never speechless, you guys. Ever. This is episode. This will be what episode sixteen uh, when this comes out. I this, for the first we've recorded sixteen times. I I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm I'm genuinely not sure. I I feel like I'm on the fence because to the point of. Preaching and and you know promulgating empowerment, like yeah, that was part of it. But you know, and and in the same breath, there was instances where I don't know, yo, I don't know, I don't know, um, I really don't. So why? So you know, I I I apologize to anybody listening to this because I can never get out of teacher mode, and this is kind of like you know, if Malik remembers twelfth grade, this is this is what I did, right? So this is the way I like to challenge people, right? This is what I want people to think about. When 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 I hear young people say I'm team Martin or I'm team Malcolm, I don't I I, I want to question what they mean by that. Like does that mean you're not Martin at all? And I don't think that's true for anybody. I think the movement and this is why 
this is why, you know, in my readings and everything, I've been so stuck on on Baldwin for so long. And I'll, and I'll go back to that yin and the yang is that is that the movement was always both of them. The movement was always both of them and it was always both of what they preached. And while we had that march in Farmingdale that was incredibly well organized, incredibly peaceful, it was incredibly empowering. And the speeches that were given that day talked about both, talked about black empowerment and talked about the structure accepting black people. It talked about opportunities for black people in our community, which is what Martin would have preached, but it talked about being proud, which is what Malcolm would have preached. And, and you know, Malcolm eventually started joining some of these marches, but he never would have, he never would have organized a march when he was, when he was a young man, you know? So I, 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 I absolutely believe and absolutely am, am confident that, that both have resonated and both have been, as Baldwin said, trapped in the same situation that, that, that they're there, they will forever be connected as much as people want to claim one side or the other that I kind of think defeats what both of them fought towards the end of their lives. I think, you know, Malcolm pulled Martin much towards, towards him in the fact that Martin started to, you know, say, you know, don't take that anymore. And, and, uh, you know, Malcolm started marching and registering people. So I think, I think the movement kind of, kind of gelled and then they were both cut down, you know, and then, you know, we had Richard Nixon and we took, you know, we stepped back 50 years. So if we're in teacher mode, I guess I have a chance to retake the test. To answer your question, the demonstration had sentiments of both. Ah, yeah. Now, now, you, now, you, now you just, just brown nosing the teacher now. Come on. <laughs> what are you doing? We should, um, we should shout out our, I would, you know what? I would say our producer, Jada. Absolutely. For providing some moral support while I was on the hot seat. Shout out to shout out to Jada. Uh, she produces and manages our, She's our social the magical media queen and really does all the background the work. And as I was on the hot seat, she was hyping me up on messaging. You're on the hot seat. You better come up with something. Um, and then she ended by saying she was proud of me for admitting that it was both sentiments. So we'll end there. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Discriminology. Thank you for listening to me being grilled at the end of our episode. That was always fun too. So take care, everyone, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, not, not see you, but you'll listen to us on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology3. Until next time, peace.